I'm Ellen Lust at the Program on Governance and Local Development at the University of Gothenburg and also a professor of political science here. And today with me is Marwa Shelaby. So thank you, Marwa, for joining us. Um, Marwa is the former director of the Women's Rights in the Middle East program at the Baker Institute at Rice University. And she also teaches Middle East politics there and is currently a visiting scholar at Gothenburg. Um, for the past years, she's been a lecturer there um, at, at Rice. She's also been funded by the Carnegie Corporation, the American University of Beirut. She's done field work in Egypt, Tunisia, Morocco, Jordan, and Lebanon, and basically sort of across <laughs> the Middle East and North Africa, um, and is here to talk to us today about sort of the intersection between politics of authoritarianism and women in politics. So I'm really, really glad you can join us today. Thank you. Thank you, Alan, for inviting me today. It's a pleasure to be here uh, with you and with the GLD team. Thank you. Um, so one of the things, in, as you know, that I think is really interesting about your work mm -hmm. is that there's a lot of people who have studied authoritarian legislatures and, and sort of the questions about, you know, why even have a legislature in the, mm -hmm. in the Middle East or North Africa or other authoritarian regimes where it feels like they don't do much. Mm -hmm. um, they put forth <clears throat> arguments that they matter in terms of distributing resources, they matter in terms of co-opting elites, that they mm -hmm. may actually help to stabilize these regimes. Um, and that's, I think, really interesting work. Not, not maybe least because I've done some of that, but um, but there's also been sort of an increasing attention inside legislatures in mm -hmm. these kinds of regimes, um, which has mostly come out of places like Vietnam or China at the moment. Um, not very much, actually. In fact, I think nothing coming out of the Middle East and North Africa. Mm -hmm. And even that work doesn't really look at the question about what happens to women once they get into power. Um, so I think you're making a really, really sort of fascinating and really important contribution Thank in you. the work that you're doing. Thank um, you very much. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the, the, this work. I mean, one of the points that you make that I think is really strong is that women are discriminated against not only at election time, mm -hmm. which gets a lot of attention, um, but also that once they get in parliament, they face obstacles that men don't have. Mm -hmm. um, so can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, so I think, um, based on the work that I did in, in many countries across the region, the obstacles are very diverse and discrimination patterns are very different across countries. I want to start with what we already know about what kind of obstacles women face um, in most of these contexts. So much work has been done on the, on the role of culture, on the... Um, some of the structural kind of impediments, the lack of exper political expertise, lack of financial support. And we, and we find like this is very similar to other places in the world too, not just particular to the Middle East. But what I found in the Middle East as something that is really a little bit more glaring than other places is, for instance, the impact of tribal structures, especially in places like Jordan and, Mor and, Jordan and Kuwait. Um, for instance, in Kuwait, women has very, very women have very very hard time accessing uh, power in districts dominated by tribal um, structures, like the fourth and fifth districts in Kuwait, for instance. And also in in Jordan, women are very they're they're very, having very hard time to have seats beyond quota seats, especially again in areas where tribal. Uh, kinships and structure are dominating. So, so tribal structure is something that is really important to put in mind um, to ha uh, when we study gender in the Middle East. And, and also something else that I found very interesting, very understudies, is the role of women caucuses. Um, based on my work in the Middle East, I found that 
places where there are established women caucuses, women do very, very well. Not just when they, they help uh, each other when to, to access politics, but also when they enter politics. So within these parliaments, women help uh, build these networks and they assist each other with uh, committee work. They, um, they give them trainings. They... Uh, they assist them um, <clears throat> with uh, with like um, discussing bills and things that need a lot of expertise. Women caucuses are also I found them very very important for promoting um, the role of women uh, within these parliaments. Um, I think also some of the obstacles that they face within these parliaments. Going back to your original question, once they're in, uh, I found that women always find very hostile environment when they come into politics, especially when they're newcomers. Uh, there's this, I, I always notice, and based on the data also that I analyzed over the past years, that there's always this kind of a backlash effect when women are, uh, are new to these parliaments due to, of course, this male-dominated kind of networks and, um, and also the fact that um, there is always this a struggle for power and and uh, for very limited resources and where male uh, male MPs always are very keen to hoard resources and um, and marginalize women. And that's the kind of things and, and stories that people you know you've talked to a lot of parliamentarians, mm -hmm. right? So yes. those are the kinds of things that they bring up and that they're yes. that they're most noticing. Um, do they also sort of recognize the importance of caucuses, and and do they do they share lessons mm -hmm. across the country? So, are Tunisian female parliamentarians talking to Jordanian mm -hmm. ones and sort of thinking about best lessons learned? Or? Yes. So the, when it comes, especially the role of caucuses, like Jordan and Morocco, they do have established uh, caucuses. In Tunisia, they have been trying for the last few years to establish caucuses, but they were not able to. And I, I found this very, very surprising, given the strength and the power of, of women in Tunisian parliament. But there are lots of... When I talk to women in Tunisia, I think it's more ideological differences, more than structural uh, pro issues. So... They, they say yes we are we are aware of the importance of caucuses we're very we we're we're keen to establish them but we cannot agree on like on the strategy or on the ideology and um, and it was very surprising for me especially in the Tunisian context they are in communication with uh, with uh, women caucuses in Morocco and especially like the North Africa countries and um, in Algeria and Morocco and Tunisia they are in contact with each other but but I think that sometimes ideological differences are very hard to overcome. I want to talk a little bit more about these differences across mm -hmm. across countries, right? Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that Tunisia can be quite different than, say, for example, Jordan, right? Mm -hmm. um, can you give us a sense of places where and and how the sort of the power of women within parliaments mm -hmm. may differ across the across the region? I think I again I believe that Tunisia is a very uh, successful example for women's representation. There, there are some ideological differences, of course, between uh, the Islamists and the secular forces in parliament. Um, but I do believe that uh, Tunisia and Morocco, um, they're they're really success stories when it comes to in women's representation. Um, and why do I think so? I think that. Women fare the best when there are quotas, strong quotas implemented, and also when 
there are strong political parties. Again, strong is not like developed kind of democracy thinking about uh, the strength of parties, but at least some established party system that are committed to women's representation. So I find it very, um, it's very surprising in places, for instance, like Jordan, with their long history of political parties and strength of parties, but the, within but within the parliament, they're not strong and they're not keen to promote women's presence within uh, within the party ranks. So I do believe that women really do best when uh, there's a strong uh, quota system implemented for a long period of time and also when their political parties are committed and when the electoral rules are designed well. So to it's not enough to have just a quota or a set of reserved seats for women put on the side. You have to design your law, the electoral laws and uh, in a way that promote the presence of women and also fix, like it's, a, it's kind of an evolving process. So, and in Tunisia, again, it's a, it's a perfect example when it comes to this. In the last election, you were implementing the zipper list and uh, and despite the fact that they had a parity clause, which intention was to have 50% women in parliament, Tunisia ended up with with less than 30% women in their parliaments. And when they looked more closely on on this, they found that the zipper list they didn't help women much because women, yes, the the list alternated between men and women, but women were not put on the top of the list. Most of the list women were not on the top of the list. So they they worked on it and they fixed the problem and they implemented both vertical and horizontal lists in local elections to uh, to achieve parity. Right, and just to be clear so that mm-hmm. everybody who's listening can understand, the zipper mm-hmm. list is the idea that if you're having a party list that's entering the uh, entering the elections, mm-hmm. that every every other candidate is a male or a female. Exactly. And when it's, when it's being done horizontal, it means every other list starts with either a man or it starts with a exactly. woman. Exactly. Right? So, so the alternation true. is across and, and, uh, and, and horizontally across, yeah. and vertically. Right, right. Which is actually interesting because... After Tunisia had done their zipper list mm-hmm. in the, right after the right after the uprisings, mm-hmm. then actually Libya was the first to do both the horizontal exactly. and the vertical list, exactly. right? So that's a, um, and those are interesting because I mean what you're doing is tying the sort of the ways in which people get into parliament mm-hmm. to their power once they're in parliament, yes. right? Um, one of the things I'm interested in getting, a, I think, a better sense of is how do you how do you look at or or measure um, the strength of women once they're in parliament? You say they do better, but what does that mean? I think there are two. In my work so far, I I use two main measures to measure women kind of substantive representation or the role of women when they actually access power. Um, the first thing that I look at, I look at, is legislative behavior. Over the past five years, I was able to collect a lot, so much data from these parliaments. So now I have a very clear idea about what kind of bills they push for, what kind of um, questions they propose and um, I also know a lot about their the districts they come from and I have a lot of background information about uh, the legislators themselves so so looking at the at this kind of data I can have a deeper look into the kind of issues that they push for and um, when do they have um, kind of independent uh, initiatives different from their other male, male elites or this initiative different from what kind of bills and uh, initiative the, the regime is pushing for. 
and when and what issues also they come together on and this is where this is the first way I, that I look at it the second way that I look at it is actually about their membership in committee legislative committees and I think this is a very important measure to have a better understanding of the role of women within these parliaments committees are very very important uh, legislative tool uh, for women and male ma both males and females in in parliaments bills are discussed are approved uh, in committees bills that come from the ruler from the ruling regimes and from the parliament itself um, and these discussions also are very important for bring visibility for these uh, for these uh, legislators and also to get access to the governing the governing coalition and to uh, ministers and and even prime ministers when they uh, they approve and discuss bills. So I do study um, uh, women's presence in these uh, legislative committees. I try to understand also when do they get access to influential and powerful committees, and when do they get marginalized to social issues and and women's committees. And there's not nothing wrong with women's issues or social. I'm not trying to belittle the effort or the or the role of these committees. All I'm trying to to establish here is that if women want to be on power influential committees they shouldn't be discriminated or marginalized again it's why they're male counterparts and what do you find with regards to that in terms of like men's ability to access those committees and women's ability to do so so far my research shows that women have better uh, have better access to power and influential committees when there is an established quota system in place and um, and I find that, that also political expertise and seniority matters. And it's really interesting that political expertise matters for women, but doesn't matter much for men when it comes to membership in influential committees. Uh, my work, my and the data, data shows that uh, men are always like uh, I always I always say that men men are just born great, and once they enter parliament, they have full access to all influential and power committees. Women has to really work very hard to be able to access these committees. Women maybe in the second or there's or maybe third like um, election um, election term when they can actually gain full access to these committees. And another pattern that I, it's very, very, very clear in the data that women don't gain access uh, that easily to leadership positions within these committees too. Leadership positions are always limit, limited to men. Tunisia was very was the country where I found very high probability of women being on leadership positions on committees, and followed by Morocco. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, like in places like Kuwait and Jordan, women almost never had any leadership roles in any of legislative committees. Interesting. That's mm -hmm. really interesting. I want to think a little bit about the relationship between representation at the parliamentary or sort of national mm -hmm. level and that at the local level, because I know you've also done some yes. some work looking at local councils and where women get represented or and the extent to which they are, mm -hmm. um, you know, we often think that they're going to be sort of more advantaged, right, that it's yes. easier to get on a local council than it is to get in a, into the parliament. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell me a little bit about your findings there? Yes, I uh, I think this is a great question, um, especially now with decentral with decentralization efforts across the region, and many countries are now starting to introduce uh, local elections, and um, these elections are very very important. They're opening 
hundreds and thousands of positions for women to access power. And this is why I think these elections are very, very uh, important. And, and there is a strong need to have um, a closer look at these elections and the outcomes of these elections too. And one of the outcomes that we really need to focus on is this link between local and national elections mm-hmm. and women's representation in, in, in these two different, different levels of governance. Research from developed democracies, as you just mentioned, always stresses the fact that these uh, pos- positions in the local level are less prestigious and thus they're more, more accessible and attainable for women. And uh, so women shouldn't have any issues kind of gaining uh, more and more seats on the local level. So this is a really, really interesting question. And me and one of my colleagues at Rice University, we did work on a project on Turkey. And we were trying to measure um, this assumption and kind of test it too. So we did a project on uh, Turkey and we analyzed data from the last 20 years and kind of because the, again Turkey has one of the longest established local politics and local governing system. So we did compare women's presence in, na- in national level, province level and local council level. And we did, and again we did not find evidence for this conventional wisdom that the, that the, these po- positions are more open for women. Actually, women are not that much represented. They don't do much better on local on the local level compared to the national level. That's at least talking about the focusing on the case of Turkey. Uh, again, a lot of work need to be done when it comes to the rest of the Middle East. Right. I mean, I know that we're looking at together at, at yes. doing a project in Oman, and it's mm-hmm. interesting to to think about that as a comparison. Yes. Right, part, partly because I know that uh, Dr. Ahmed Mukhaini mm-hmm. had done work on some of this in in Oman, and he found that um, exactly similar to what you're saying, mm-hmm. that women w- didn't find it easy to get into local yes. sort of bodies, and partly that was because he said that actually what it did it was even it encouraged men to get in and engage in civil society organizations, which mm-hmm. are often seen as being <laughs> yes. important for getting in, right? Yes. Because they saw that as kind of a stepping stone, mm-hmm. both to local and then to national yes. representation, right? So yes, and yeah. I think this also uh, another thing that I was thinking while you're you're saying uh, talking about Oman is, for instance, in Saudi Arabia. So women, this is the only opportunity for women to enter politics in places like Saudi Arabia, and this is why we shouldn't ha- we shouldn't kind of underestimate or un- and like we should more st- more should be done on local elections because in some places this is a really only way for women to access power. So right, right. exactly. Um, and you've mentioned a couple of times sort of things that are important in terms of the the lessons we can learn from mm-hmm. your work to thinking about policy making and development poli- policies, mm-hmm. et cetera. Can you spell out for us a little bit the what you see as the most important lessons for policymakers who might be interested in thinking about how women can gain more representation and, and actually be effective once mm-hmm. in once, you know, in the legislature, once in the local council? I think, um, like, I know everyone heard this before, and I'm going to say it again. I think quotas matter. Quotas are very, very important, and they're different forms. Either this is a gender parity clause or is it reserved seats, or just thinking about quota more broadly. Quotas do matter, especially when quotas are implemented and designed right. I always, I keep on repeating in every single talk that I do that there is a huge difference between weak quotas and strong quotas. Weak quotas are not, they're not going to produce, 
produce outcomes that we we have in mind for women and women's political empowerment. So policymakers and practitioners and us as scholars too, we have to bear in mind the differences between a strong quota and a weak quota. Strong quota, in my opinion, is a quota that is uh, that there's a huge commitment by the ruling elites and by parties and uh, and the rules are designed right to actually empower women um they are uh they're also i also measure the success of quota when women are able to be elected beyond quota seats quotas are successful when they are able to change attitudes toward women in power so in places like just recently in Jordan and Morocco, women were able to gain seats beyond quota seats. And th then I would think about, especially in Morocco, um, now I start to think now quotas women uh, for women is starting to work and they're becoming more acceptable on the societal level and they're also changing some of the norms uh, uh, of um, uh, associated with women's representation. Um, another uh, another uh, lesson that I think is important is the importance of institutional and in legislative engineering and how you design electoral laws and how you implement them. And as I mentioned before, Tunisia is a very in, in important example when it comes to designing uh, these, these laws and implementing them. Um, also, a third point that I that I learned from my work and doing interviews with women across the region is the importance of training programs for women, training for women as candidates and as politicians too when they enter these parliaments are very very important. But what I found that most of these training programs are all are often run by international organizations and foreign aid uh, associations and and most women in this context are very suspicious of these organizations and this is why like last time i was doing interviews in jordan and um and with women in parliament where they were complaining to me that they lack the training required for them to do their legislative role. Lots of even simple rules within the parliament, they're having a hard time understanding. And they, there's this lack of training that is, that is, that's negatively affecting their ability. So I asked this question, I mean, like, why don't you go to, I know that the organization X and organization Y in Jordan, do you do this kind of training? And they said, no, these people, they have an agenda. We, we don't trust these people. So, so I, that's the way I think about it. That if it, ruling elites and governments are, are sincere about women's representation, she sh they should um, hold these trainings for women and help them succeed within these parliaments and, um, and, and perform their legislative role. Can I push you a little bit on the Jordan case for a yes. second? Because I find it... I'm, I'm trying to read whether the, you see Jordan as a strong or a weak yes. quota system. I mean, mm -hmm. I've always actually thought of it as a weak one, yes. partly because they have what they call the, sort of the largest, basically you, the women get in by mm -hmm. getting the largest percentage of votes, Yes. right? And then it means that people in very small districts, which also happen to tend to be very sort of rural and conservative districts yes. have a, a greater chance of having a larger percentage of a small mm -hmm. number of people, right? Yes. So therefore, we've often brought in women, or Jordan has often brought in women to parliament 
who are more conservative, arguably, than many of the men who are in parliament, right, yes. and see, being seen as being kind of more rural, less less mm-hmm. capable, etc. I mean, that's how I had always understood it. But then when you're saying that, you know, Jordan is the place where women now are able to get elected without, um, mm-hmm. you know, without the quota system, it, it, it sounds like you see that as a stronger quota system than I do. So I'm interested in just to, for a second to think about that with you. Yeah, no, I think the way that I, the way I was describing the, the strengths, I, I agree with you. I always refer to uh, Jordan as a weak case of quotas. Jordan does not have a strong quota system. Uh, but the way I was, I was just describing the fact that uh, when quotas can can change societal norms, and actually in 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 Jordan, when women came to power beyond the the quota seats, it was only an amman in in very urban areas and uh, where there's already more uh, gender egalitarian kind of attitudes. Women did not, we, they were not able to get any seats beyond quota in more rural areas and so. And, and this is and this is an issue that that means that the quota system is not it's not changing attitudes in these areas so so yes I, 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 I always refer to Jordan as a very weak quota system and and the weakness and the main weakness in, in, in a Jordanian case is the problem with the parties and how they do not uh, push for for uh, women's nomination and um, and inclusion in their in their uh, in their cadre and um, and only Islamists are actually doing a good job when it yeah. comes to including women um, in their platforms and um, and uh, recently when they joined parliament they actually included two or three women in on their list and they're and these women, I met them again last time when I was doing field work in Jordan, and they are—they're very well. And they always talk to me about the amount of training and the resources and, um, and that they receive from the party compared to other, of course, females who have this advantage that compared to other women in in parliaments who don't have this kind of uh, support. That's really interesting. I think it would go away, uh, sort of, in the opposite direction yes. of what a lot of people would maybe kind of stereotype Islamists mm-hmm. as as being less interested in having the women mm-hmm. be powerful, both getting into into parliaments and also having some kind of, you know, kind of real effective role once they're in. So, yeah, and it brings um, also in the role of parties on pr- in the promoting the role of women, too. Yeah. So, and how they can, uh, they can help women um, to enter parliament and also to succeed when they are in parliament. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much. You. This is super fascinating work. And, and again, I look forward to both seeing it um, now, but as it, as it continues to progress. Thanks. Thank you very much for having me today. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks.